Welcome to Life Solved, the research podcast from the University of Portsmouth, where we explore how studies here are changing our world today and in the future. I'm John Worsey, a writer at the University of Portsmouth. This time, we explore the concept of democracy and ask whether it's under threat. Leila Shakrun is Professor of International Law and Director of the Democratic Citizenship Research Theme at the University. I've always had a quite critical and inquisitive mind. My PhD was about China and the World Trade Organization at the time of China's accession to the organization. I started to work on the Chinese regime, democracy and non-democracy, the rule of law. And then I moved to Indian democracy and later to East Africa. So I've always interrogated the concept of democracy within my research on international law. Daniel Bedford is senior lecturer and programme lead for the law school. After my undergraduate, I went and worked in Uganda, Rwanda and Kenya with a human rights NGO. And I then came back and did an international human rights law master's at the University of Exeter and then followed that up with my PhD. So I've always found human rights very, very interesting. It turns out that democracy as we know it, even in countries in the global north, is going through a period of challenge and change. And these challenges come from governments and citizens alike. So what is the history of democracy? What is happening today? And assuming we want to continue to live in a democratic world, how do we ensure its future? The term democracy goes back thousands of years, but it's not a definition that has stayed static over the centuries. It comes from the Greek, demos, and kratos. So, okrasia, demos, the people, and krasia, power. So that would mean that people have the power or the sovereignty is embedded within the people. So you all think about Athens, 5th century BCE, but actually at the time, the democracy in Athens was very different from today's democracy. We had a question of space, where, who, people, and how. So space, that was actually limited to a city. So certainly not a country, but rather a city. Then who? Who could benefit from democracy? The citizens. But who was a citizen? Only 15% of the population. Why was that? Because women were excluded. Slaves were excluded. And you had lots of slaves at that time in Athens. And foreigners were excluded. And then how? In terms of tools, in institution, you had the agora, you had assemblies, but something really far away from today's democracy. But it's worth remembering that democracy isn't a uniquely European concept. It's not only Greece and then Rome and then Western world, uh, Europe. Certain forms similar to what we think is democracy today existed already as late or as far away as the 6th century in India. You had sort of kingdoms in which population was quite well represented and had a say. And then, of course, when we talk today about democracy... We have in mind a sort of liberal version of democracy based on the 18th century enlightenment sort of institution and thinking. We use the term of representative democracy, constitutional democracy, classical liberal democracy, and 
by that we mean basically a system in which you have institutions on the one hand and rights on the other hand. Institution, to simplify, you have the executive, the parliament, the legislative power, and as well as the judiciary. And rights, you have a constitution and a number of freedoms and rights. Freedom of speech, freedom of expression, freedom of religion, freedom of demonstration, and so on and so forth. So to simplify, that's probably what we think is democracy. Something I'd like to just make clear is a distinction between a, a very kind of narrow view of democracy as what we call majoritarian democracy. Mm-hmm. Democracy is whatever the majority wants through elections. They vote for a majority party. The majority party makes a decision. That is the democratic outcome. Whereas you can see democracy as a much more detailed concept that protects our rights as well as whatever the majority wants. So in a true democracy, perhaps that's based on equality, we might recognize the rights of minorities and that we have to protect those rights from what we would call the tyranny of the majority. So, is there such a thing as the perfect democracy? This is also quite evolving concept. So from the 6th century BC in India or 5th century in Athens to today, we had different forms of regime, even in the late 19th century, early 20th century in Europe and in North America, democracies were quite different to the democracies we have today. So we have to bear in mind that there's a sort of pendulum swing and waves of democracy. So late 19th century, you had a number of new democratic countries, mostly in Europe. Think about the 1960s, post-decolonization, a number of new countries, democratic countries indeed in Africa, in Latin America. And then another wave of non-democratic countries. It's not because you're democracy one day that you always remain a democracy. So this is also something really interesting to think about. In the autumn of 2023, the Open Society Foundation conducted a study across 30 countries and discovered that 86% of respondents wanted to live in a democracy and 85% wanted to live in a country where human rights are implemented. Good news, right? Well, there's a surprising problem hidden in these statistics. In the same study, we find that 58% of the youngsters, so we're talking about people between the age of 18 and 35, support military regime and would like to support a sort of strong leader for 35% of them. This is actually quite worrying because you might think, well, youngsters should support democracy and human rights more, right? But it's actually not the case. So this begs the question of education. We are a university, so surely there's a lot for us to do in terms of conveying and explaining the message, what's democracy? And why is it that youngsters support military regime and strong leaders? What do they see in that? We have a number of other studies, including from the UN, questioning the decline of democracy based on a number of indicators, freedom of speech, freedom of movement, freedom to demonstrate. We are referring to countries like Hungary, countries like China, countries like Russia, but also to our own democracies, where it seems that democracy is going backward. As Leila says, limits on democracy are a cause for concern beyond the countries that might be described as the usual suspects. Here in the UK, the democratic right to protest and demonstrate has been a much-discussed topic recently, whether it's people taking to the streets to protest the Israel-Palestine conflict, the coronation of King Charles III, or the Black Lives Matter movement. 
the idea of protesting, expressing your voice, right, expressing your opinion is something which relates to democracy for sure, but which always existed. So you oppose the king, you oppose the sovereign, you oppose the state simply because you want to voice your concerns about taxation, about freedom of movement and so on and so forth. Democracy is based on a set of institutions and rights. The freedom to protest, the freedom to express your views is part of them and is generally recognized at the highest sort of legal level in the constitution often. The problem here again is that it's not necessarily set in stone, although I just said that it's recognized in the constitution, but it doesn't mean that it's always respected, always implemented. And there's always the need to fight for these rights, to remind the state that you as the people have rights and to remind the state that it is also accountable. That's what we call the rule of law. Democracy and the rule of law can be complex. A country like China might have numerous laws and a justice system, but no democracy. But even in democratic countries, our rights can be challenged by the state. One of the reasons is the idea of public order. We've heard that quite a lot recently in a number of countries, including in the UK. Public order. So it would mean that security would be more valued than a number of other freedoms. For what reason? Is it even legal? It can be if we feel that the state existence, to some extent, is threatened by terrorist group. Let's take the 9-11 example. After 9-11, a number of measures uh, were taken into consideration and put in place by the US, by France, by the UK, most of the countries to justify the intervention of the states to protect us against terrorism. Remember COVID-19, that was the same. So the state of exception at that time was argued in favor of security and on the contrary to a number of rights. We didn't have the right to move. And what about the right to protest in the UK and other democratic countries? The right to protest, which is protected under the European Convention of Human Rights, given effect in the UK via the Human Rights Act, is not absolute. So it is a limited right. There are circumstances where it can be restricted, but any restriction has to be proportionate. And that has to be also, and this is the terminology, necessary in a democratic society. So if you're going to limit the right to protest, it has to meet this democratic standard as well. In a moment, we focus on the United Kingdom. What do recent changes in the law mean? How have they affected democracy and protest? And what does the future hold? If you're enjoying Life Sold, the research podcast from the University of Portsmouth, then you might like one of our other episodes. Now in our 13th series, there's a wealth of stories to be explored and information to be understood over more than 100 episodes. Earlier in 2023, we spoke to Dr. John Fox, a former senior police detective turned academic. We talked about the authorities overseeing the police service and the behaviour and attitudes of their officers. They pretty well know what an officer does in terms of their financial affairs, whether they're a registered criminal, but they don't know how an applicant officer thinks. Okay, and that's the big difference. So that, to me, is where things need to change. That episode, alongside all the others, is available to stream for free wherever you listen to your podcasts. 
We've already discovered how democracy is an ever-evolving concept and that history doesn't often follow a straight line from a lack of democracy to a utopian dream. In recent times here in the UK, the rule of law has rubbed up against some of our democratic ideals. We had a, a new piece of legislation passed in 2022 which introduced new restrictions on the right to protest and enables the police to place restrictions on the routes and when protests can be held and various other aspects of protest. It can be applied wherever there is a concern that there be a serious disruption to the life of the community from that protest. And a serious disruption means anything that's more than minor that might interfere with day-to-day -day activities or it might interfere with the delivery of time-sensitive products. It might also encompass anything that is more than minor disruption to the access to essential goods and services. So this is a quite expansive range of circumstances where the police can recognise that a situation is going to disrupt the life of the community. We'd already had law in place that enabled the police to place conditions on protests if there was a serious disruption to the life of the community. But what has happened is this legislation has begun to define what constitutes a serious disruption. And it's something that's more than minor in relation to these various things that I've mentioned. So it's a much wider, I think, range of circumstances now where the police can interfere with the right to protest. The other situations now are in relation to noisy protests. Protests that cause serious disruption to an organisation or might cause alarm or distress to passers-by because their protests are too noisy would be recognised as something that is also capable of being prohibited by the police. If you've ever been at or seen a protest, you'll know that they are traditionally loud affairs. Protests are usually by definition noisy. They're about raising our voice and having our voice heard. And of course, if a particular cause is attracting a larger number of people, you would expect that cause to be more noisy because there's more people, right? So it is interesting what has happened. There are, of course, very serious concerns that it is interfering with the rights of individuals, as Leila was talking about earlier, to have their voices expressed on significant issues of public concern, for minorities to be able to express their rights to be treated as equals in society, and all of these other sorts of issues. One of the challenges with this new legislation is that it puts the definition of serious disruption into the hands of the government. And at the time of recording, the UK had marked Armistice Day, the commemoration of the end of the First World War. And in London, protests by those calling for a ceasefire in the Israel-Palestine conflict and so-called counter-protesters were allowed to go ahead with their demonstrations. One of the biggest concerns, I think, with this legislation, and we've seen it in the last week or so, is how vague and broad it is. And this leads to problems with the government potentially being able to apply pressure on the police. So we saw this idea that the Metropolitan Police could be pressurised into restricting this on the basis that they should be using the powers that they have been given to prevent this from taking place. And this is clearly concerning because the role of the police is to enforce the law going back to the rule of law it's not to enforce the political will of the dominant party in government and so this is i think one of the concerns about this particular type of legislation is that it creates space for the application of this kind of pressure in a way that doesn't restrict the power sufficiently and there's a danger there to suppressing or chilling speech 
What Daniel just said is absolutely fascinating and very important to understand. This is something we observe in the UK, but actually everywhere in the world, including Western democracies. There is a greater role for the executive. We have, logically, three branches of government executive, legislative and judiciary. So instead of giving more force, more power to the parliament to simplify, we observe that the executive, the government, is taking more and more and more and more important decisions. Not only in neo-authoritarian countries, but in our democracies. And this becomes really complicated for law enforcement authorities, the police. Because the police, I suppose, has done, rightly say, to enforce the law. But what's the law then? This won't be the first time that the police are damned if they do, damned if they don't. But Daniel thinks the new UK legislation provides some new challenges. If you define the circumstances in which the police can interfere broadly enough, then you can complain if the police don't then enforce what it is you want them to do, (laughs) which is, I think, partly what we saw in the last week. But it also creates the potential for misuse and abuse of power by the police because if they're dealing with very vague laws that could potentially apply to a wide range of circumstances they might then resort to using those powers in an inappropriate way because they may not understand the scope or limits of their powers so for example during the king's coronation and there were some protests during that there were reports of of people being threatened with arrest by holding up signs saying not my king And if you're thinking about democracy and the ability of people to be able to claim that this is not for them a genuine democracy, the society they live in, and we would probably see that as as an important form of speech and that should be protected. We saw also during that arrests of volunteers on the day of the protest because there were women handing out rape alarms and the police arrested them on the suspicion that those alarms were going to be used as part of the protest to disrupt it. They had to apologise afterwards because there was absolutely no basis on which that was true in this case. These women were obviously out at 2am providing these rape alarms to help others to remain safe. But these are just examples of where if you allow vague laws that enable the police a wide discretion to determine when something is illegal or not, then you create that room for an abuse of power and you create that space for the police to make decisions that I think many of us would find very concerning. And it's not just rights we should be thinking about. It's the wider democracy. Things like judicial independence. Absolutely. So in Poland and Hungary, they've seen reforms to their judicial system, which erodes the independence of the judiciary, which means that more power can be exercised and influence can be exercised over those judges by the politicians in a way that means that there's less accountability, (laughs) which is, of course, something that we would consider, I think, probably an important facet of democracy. It seems that challenges and changes to democracies both in Britain and around the world are coming thick and fast at the moment. When we spoke to Leila and Daniel, there had just been a new twist in the UK government's approach to asylum and immigration. The UK government had wanted to adopt a policy that would enable them to deport individuals entering the UK via um, illegal means, including via boats, to Rwanda, where their asylum claim would be processed and they would claim asylum in Rwanda rather than claiming it here. And the UK Supreme Court found that that was unlawful. 
it was unlawful in relation to Article 3 of the European Convention on Human Rights, but also under the Refugee Convention, because these instruments protect against what's called non-refoulement. So if you return a person to a country where there's a risk that that person would then be deported again back to a country where they might be subject to torture or persecution, then that's something that's precluded under the law. And so the Supreme Court was enforcing that law by saying that Rwanda is not a safe country. If you were to deport people to Rwanda, there's a real risk that they could then be deported to a country, perhaps a country of origin, where they may be subjected to torture or some other kind of serious harm. Leila sees this outcome as a positive for the concept of democracy. It shows the power still of our democracies. If we have active, independent judiciaries, they're here to balance the political force, if you wish. And this is something a country like China doesn't have. They don't have an independent judiciary. So what can be done to restore trust in the democratic process? As we've already heard, young people are growing up with less confidence in democracy than their parents and grandparents have. We can say that there's nothing perfect in democracy. It's not the most perfect regime, but as we often say, maybe it's the best we have until now because of this combination between institutions and rights. And it's the best to protect us as individuals and to make our voices heard. So for the youngsters in particular, we started with this sort of alarming statistic where do believe in what you have if you're lucky enough to live in a democratic country, engage with the political life of your country, try to be creative and dynamic to propose rights and freedom to support them. And again, engage more with your daily life. And daily life is not only about practicalities and materialistic life, but think about concepts, think about ideas. Ideas and concepts do matter a lot. When making a choice at an election, I would be very inclined to say, make sure that you're choosing a party that's going to protect democracy. I know that sounds a bit of an odd thing to say, but we're looking at things like the United States and we're seeing the threats, I think, to the democratic institutions of that country. And that a vote is not just a vote between two different parties, a vote for a party or a particular individual who may undermine or begin to undermine democracy. In terms of how we can enhance democracy, there's obviously been a lot of discussion around devolution, whether or not we need more devolution, whether we need more democratic institutions at a local level in the United Kingdom, for example. And I'd like to explore, consider from further whether or not that would enhance people's trust in the institutions of democracy. As you've heard, Events were developing in the days and weeks before the recording of this episode and doubtless will continue to be fast-moving for some time to come. The growing distrust in democracy and new restrictions to rights worldwide might well be a cause for concern. But it's important to remember that despite our collective challenges, the world is still more democratic than it was half a century ago. And that is something to be celebrated and built upon. Thanks for listening to this episode of Life Solved. You're very welcome to be part of the discussion. Email us at lifesolved at port.ac.uk. That's lifesolved, one word, at port.ac.uk. Tell us what you think and make suggestions for future episodes of Life Solved. And we'd love it if you clicked follow on your podcast app so you never miss an edition. We would really appreciate it if you left a rating or review as well. It helps us get these conversations into more ears around the globe. 
We actually recorded this episode in a replica courtroom at the university. So if you'd like to see the video version, if you'd like to study law, or you want to support our work, then head to port.ac.uk slash lifesolved. We are taking a Christmas break, but we're returning on Thursday the 11th of January to get serious about smells. When we're reintroduced to a sort of smell, even many years later, we smell like a triggered response and we can have a very kind of vivid sort of picture of when we first experienced that particular odour. Join us again in 2024. And in the meantime, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas.